I am pleased to be back with everyone this morning, um, and at, at the same time, um, I have to say that this is, this morning, uh, a very difficult topic. We've heard the statistics, seen the hashtags and headlines, and um, if the, the numbers are right, and I have no reason to believe that they're not, just one, one in four women will be abused during their lifetime. And the stories are everywhere, right? From Hollywood moguls to captains in industry to priests and pastors. And the issue of abuse hits close to home. Very close. And today we come to this landmine that honestly the church, and I mean the church worldwide, has not done a terribly great job of dealing with. Talking about abuse is perhaps the hardest of topics that I can think of to preach on. There's nothing simple about this topic. There's nothing uplifting but it's important, and I would argue necessary for us to talk about. This morning, there's no long introduction. There's no clever entry point. Um, sometimes the seriousness of a thing requires that we just move forward. So I would ask that you would pray with me this morning. Father, this morning, um, there are so many things that are easy to go through our minds. We think of things like this Memorial Day weekend and the sacrifice so many made on our behalf as Americans for our freedom. We think of the things that go on in our lives and we think about the millions and millions of Muslims around the world celebrating Ramadan this month and pray for you to be known to them during this time. Think about the cares and concerns of the world, and then we come to this topic that is so difficult for us to address well. And I pray that this morning, the words that come from me would be your words, that they would be both a challenge and a comfort, that above all, you would be seen even in the brokenness of our world. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in a few different passages this morning. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, as we move into this, this topic, I want to make sure that we're on sort of the same page, that we know what we're talking about, that we're doing this from um, a place of honesty and integrity and clarity. And I have to say from the outset that I am very much indebted to Pastor Travis's sermon on this topic. Um, I'm stealing a good deal from him. Um, I told him I was going to, um, and he gave me uh, the approval. Um, if you would happen to want to see that, um, it's, you can find it on uh, the Aurora Campus's uh, live uh, um, archives. Um, and... I, uh, it, the sermon is not the same, but I did um, very much uh, rely on Pastor Travis. And to be perfectly honest at the outset, this is a really hard topic to talk about. I had absolutely no problem last week in preparing for a sermon on politics, thing that most people don't ever want to touch. I knew exactly where it was going to go, how I was going to approach it. It didn't take me that long to actually put that sermon together. And generally, I relish dealing with difficult topics. It's part of my personality. I love it. But this week is different. It was not an easy sermon to prepare for or to preach in any circumstances, and maybe even harder here. And I'm not alone in my reluctance. This is not a topic that you hear treated with any regularity in sermons or in day-to-day -day conversations around the church. It's a topic we avoid unless we have to deal with it. 
We avoid talking about it unless it's at a distance, an abstraction, a talking point for political or social stances. It's safer from a distance, at least sort of. We don't want to get too close, and for good reason, because when you look around, even the tiniest taint turns everything and everyone around to ash. And abuse brings home the tragic realities of sin, of the evil that humanity can do to one another in an up-close and personal way, and it is a sin that cuts to the core of who we are as human beings. And when we talk about abuse, it's easy to think of that as their problem, whoever the there is in this case. But it's a bigger problem than we in the church would like to admit. Sometimes we think, okay, that's the cultural thing. We're not surprised when a Hollywood mogul is accused because, of course, they're pagans and we don't expect it, uh, anything different. But... This is a problem for the church as well. We've seen it in the scandals of the Roman Catholic Church over the last 15 or better years. We've seen it now in the Southern Baptist Convention of large churches in our area and in small independent churches as well. It doesn't stop at the walls of the church. And in all of these cases, we're tempted to think of abuse as one specific sort of a thing. But it's not. There are many types. And they may be interconnected. They often are. But we have to be careful that when we talk about this, we're not just thinking in one dimension. So let's talk about the types for just a moment before we get into the passages. Of course, there's physical abuse which can be defined as the intentional act of causing injury or trauma to another person by way of bodily contact. We're not talking about discipline here. For the record, discipline is, is not about fear or causing injury. If it's to demean a child or diminish their dignity in any way, if it causes bodily harm and is not truly for the betterment of the child, then we're not really talking about discipline here. So that's a separate question. But we're talking about things like Ray Rice or Cubs stars. Second type is sexual abuse, which is undesired sexual behavior by one person upon another. Can be between adults or adults and children. Between adults can happen in marriages. And often it is perpetrated by using force, but not always. And sometimes it's the use of position, of authority. And sometimes it's verbal harassment. There's mental abuse. A form of violence that affects the mind. It's wearing away at a person's mental well-being, perhaps even that making a person question their own sanity. It's deceptive and controlling. It can go to great lengths in order to keep a person isolated and controlled, and it's real, not just in the movies. There's emotional abuse, which is related to mental abuse. We, we often call this verbal abuse. Constantly denying or minimizing or blaming or shaming. And it often goes hand in hand with the first or second kinds. The abused person feels worthless or lacking in power. This is manipulative. This is the, you're worthless and you should be glad I'm with you because no one else would have you kind of abuse. It's a means of control and intimidation and fear. There's financial abuse, where one partner so controls the access to financial resources that the other person can't do anything without them. There's cultural and identity-related abuse, and this can take many forms, but it often what it does is it takes an aspect of a person's identity and uses that to demean or control them. And commonly, this could be racial abuse or ethnic abuse, religious abuse, abuse based on sexual orientation or gender. And when it comes to religious identity or sexual orientation, Christians can hesitate because we feel like, how do we oppose something that you know is 
scripturally problematic on the one hand and not demean the person on the other. And it can be a tricky line. And then finally, there's spiritual abuse. And perhaps this is the most evil, not necessarily the most traumatic, because sometimes the others are far more traumatic, but spiritual abuse goes to the core of who we are in ways that the others, as vile as they are, can't. Because what's the purpose of religion, of the church? It's access to and connection with God. And what spiritual abuse does is it uses God as a means to get one's own sinful desires fulfilled and to control others. And it can take many forms, but it always seeks to use God in order to control others. And as St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, God. This is what we are made for above and beyond anything else. And it's at this point that I need to pause and say, if you are facing abuse, you need to do something. You need to tell someone. And I know that that statement alone is scary because the statistics say that is a point of most vulnerability. You may fear for yourself or others. And I am very much um, assured, and I have heard from other pastors at Village say that if there's a physical or sexual abuse situation, the first call, and I mean the first call, is to the police. The second call is to the pastor. They're trained for this. And I know this, that Village Bible Church will be with the person who is in this situation. Because I've seen that happen. I've seen churches struggle in a really bad way and circle the wagons and protect an abuser because there's, there's this tendency to protect institutions. Because we're afraid, what, what will happen? What will our witness look like if this gets out? But the problem is, it will get out eventually. And the witness is worse. It's wrong to do that. I have also seen that village is not like that. I wouldn't be standing here if I thought it was. I've seen the church rally around people who are in an awful position, and that is what we need to be. Abuse can take many forms and come from many places, and often it comes from the most unexpected of places. We tend to think of the creepy guy. We tend to think of those movie and television tropes of the ice cream truck guy or, or whomever. The people who seem off. But the problem is that abuse can hide in plain sight. And the perpetrators and victims can be the last person you would expect. So let's go to the scriptures for a real life example. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 18. This is a fairly long passage, but this is a really instructive one. Saul is king, first king of Israel, and he's the king the people wanted, handsome and tall, the guy everybody wants to be around when he walks into the room. Strong, victorious in battle, but he's violated God's rules. God's rejected him, and he knows it. In chapter 16, David is anointed as king. Saul doesn't know this yet. In chapter 17, we get that most famous of stories, David and Goliath. And then we come to chapter 18, and this is what we see. After, this is, this is just after, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, and he did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men 
were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. This is where the story turns. And David, his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing uh, the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns, and everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter and Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle as they often did. David met them with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. We'll stop there. The story goes on in chapters 19 and 20. Saul tries to kill David again, and Jonathan, David's best friend, warns him. Michael, Jonathan's sister and David's wife, warns him of a plot and keeps and keep Saul's men from killing her husband. Jonathan holds off his father once, but in, again is put in the middle of things, and he warns David. And this is nothing if not the picture of abuse on several levels. Deception and emotional abuse of seeking to kill, of even of spiritual abuse. Saul is in a position of authority. He is the authority in the land. And there's really no one who can challenge him. All he has to do is be the king and follow God's laws. But what do we see here? We see a man who has it all together, but who is running scared on the inside willing to do whatever it takes to stay in power, to make himself feel better. Look, his family knows he's dangerous. His own family is working against him. Even though, as is seen in the following chapters, Jonathan really doesn't want to believe it of his father. He tests Saul, but he doesn't want to believe that his father is capable of the kind of abuse we see just in chapter 18. The deception 
the, the trying to get David killed. Saul is threatened by the accolades of David, by his prowess. He threatens and cheats David, a man who's done nothing but honor him. In the succeeding chapters, time and time again, David has the opportunity to stop Saul, to kill Saul, and he doesn't. Saul is a classic abuser. In the world we live in, abusers are often not who we or they think they are. No doubt, Saul would never have recognized himself as an abuser. But he was. And he's sought to justify himself and his actions. That's what abusers do. And abuse can seem small or start small, but it grows. And we have seen the exposure of abusive behavior recently in different ways by two high-profile pastors in the Chicagoland area. It can come from places we never expect. And that means we have to be careful of not falling into the trap of saying, oh, so-and-so could never. I'm not suggesting automatic suspicion or jumping to conclusions at all. We need to get evidence. But we need to remember that we are all fallen. I I watch a television show, uh, Chicago PD, and the, uh, the captain of the intelligence unit is of dubious moral character um, for, in his mind, to get the job done. And a couple of episodes ago that I saw, there was a particularly heinous crime, and the question was, how can people, how can someone do this? And his response was, we are all capable of this. And I thought, that is the most astute and theologically correct observation I've ever seen on a television show. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ ultimately, the iniquity of us all. Romans 3, 10 to 12, is quoting Psalm 14 when it says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Of course, we all have heard Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For some reason, many of us in the church don't seem to want to believe that someone we know, especially a Christian, could be capable of these things. And at the same time, we have evidence upon evidence within Scripture that says, of course we're, we are capable. Calvinist theology, there's a doctrine called total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but it means that there is no part of us that has not been affected by sin. No part. And Tom knows what's coming next because in small group, I used to say this all the time. I had a professor in grad school who used to say that sin goes, the fall goes all the way down. And what he meant was that there is no part of us that is unaffected by sin. And abuse can come from anywhere. And the person who has been abused may not seem like it either. They may not even know that it's going on because it's become so normal. They may seem like they have it all together, that they could not possibly be telling the truth, on the other hand. And we have to be wary of this kind of thinking. We simply don't know what goes on behind closed doors. The person we know to be a liar may be telling the truth. And the one who puts on a brave face may not really be so brave. But we need to know this, that abuse is opposed by God. Always. And there are no exceptions. And there's some that try to use the name of God to justify their abuse of another. And there are others who blame God for abuse or even say that God is guilty on the Christian story's own account of divine child abuse. And these could not be further from the truth. It would be enough 
from just reading 1 Samuel 18 to simply say that God is clearly on the side of David and that he opposed Saul and used Saul's own family to approve it. But I want us to be clear, the Bible is remarkably consistent on this, I, this fact. A book that spans authors and millennia, cultures and language, and yet its message in this regard is entirely consistent. Some people think that the Old Testament God is mean and vindictive and petty, and the New Testament God is a God of love, and they are wrong. Because God is one, and he is always against abuse. Consider the following. The first murder, the very first abuse, Cain and Abel. And what does God say? Abel's blood cries out to him. In Exodus 22, verses 21 to 24, this is built into the law. Do not mistreat or oppress the foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused. I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. God takes this seriously. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse uh, 29 to 35. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. For the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is upon the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. The wise inherit honor, but the fool only gets shame. In Psalm chapter 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against, me, against the strings to shoot from the shadows and the, at the upright in heart. And when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on the earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. And those are simply a few examples from the Old Testament. And we could go further. We could speak of the times that the Bible speaks on behalf of women like Tamar. Or in Deuteronomy 22, the law makes it clear that rape is a heinous crime. And you have to understand how, uh, how different the biblical law is. That the man is to be stoned and there are to be absolutely no consequences for the woman. This is an honor and shame culture in which something like this could, in some parts of the world, still today does and is considered to be an unbearable shame for both the woman and her entire family. The, um, as I was doing research, I ran across an article by Katie McCoy on the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Commission site. And the, the title of the article is God is Not Silent, What the Bible Teaches About Sexual Assault. And she says this about the biblical story compared to other ancient Near East. Compare biblical law with the Codex of Ur Namu from Sippar, which determine the attacker's punishment according to the woman's social status. So, punishment depended on who you were. Or Middle Assyrian law, which allowed the father of an unbetrothed rape victim to abuse the wife of his daughter's attacker. Think about that. That's the world the law is written in. And the law says, no, that's not what we do. That's not who we are. In Colossians 3, 19 and 21, Paul makes it clear to husbands and fathers that abusive behavior is out of bounds. Don't be harsh with your, mouth, your wife. Don't embitter your children or provoke them. Jesus, after telling his disciples to let children come to them in Matthew 18, tells the crowd that if someone causes one of these little children to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and drowned 
Think about that. This is Jesus saying this. In Romans 12, 9, we are told not to take revenge, but that God will. And Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 32, 25. God opposes abuse and takes it seriously. And James tells us we're to care for the widow and orphan. That's the positive flip side of the negatives about abuse. And make no mistake, the Bible is clear that all abusive behavior is opposed by God. It's contrary to God's nature as well. Why is this such a big deal? Because it violates who God is. Last week when we talked about politics, we looked at Psalm 146 and we saw that God is creator, God is redeemer, and God is king. And the picture the psalmist is painting is about the nature of who God is, about his character as well as his actions. So as creator, God is the giver of life. He is, the scriptures tell us, just and merciful and righteous and loving. And these are not things God aspires to. They are part of who he is. And one could argue that we would not understand them, that they would not exist apart from God. But God is also the Redeemer. Scripture paints a picture of God as the God who always pursues us. He disciplines us, sure. But why does he do that? So that his creation, who rejected him, can be with him, always. It's said that no matter how far we flee from God, all we have to do is turn around, and he is there. God's character is that of a redeemer. He is constantly, we are told, on the side of the oppressed. We saw that over and over again in Psalm 146. Whether or not they believe in him, and he is the king. The law is his. It is an extension of his being, his will, his ordering of the universe. And some say that based on the Old Testament, God is an abuser. But what we've already seen this morning is that God is opposed to abuse. And yes, there are things in the Old Testament that offend modern sensibilities, especially if we just do a cursory reading and don't understand the culture and the day that it was written in. But the law in the Old Testament went out of its way to protect women and foreigners and those who were helpless in an unprecedented manner, in a way that nothing else in the ancient world looks like. And some will also accuse God the Father of divine child abuse because he sent his son on our behalf. But to do so fundamentally misunderstands the Trinity. Because the Son of God is the second person of the Trinity come to take our place. So what we see in Jesus, in the atonement, is God taking on the penalties for our sins on himself, which is the opposite of abuse. Third, abuse is a violation of God's creation. If God is creator, if he is redeemer and king, and of all that has been and is and will be, then when we abuse another person, we are violating God's created order. We are doing violence to what God has said is good in his creative act, and we need to take that seriously. When God created, he created well. The capstone of creation is humanity. Humans were placed in creation to commune with God, the God who created it all. Humans created in God's image. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, reminds us of the immense worth of humans. This is what he says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Small g, he doesn't mean God as we think of God. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, 
all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours with the, as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the Blessed Sacrament itself, you have to remember that Lewis was a high Anglican. He's talking about communion. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I think that's a really important thing for us to remember. It is not a stretch to say that abusing human beings is the next closest thing to striking out at God. Third, abuse has consequences. Abuse is a sin which, in which ripples come out like when a rock is thrown into a pond. Something that seems small keeps expanding. Of course, as we have seen, it's not small. Not for the people involved. And here's what I mean. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, you see the story of Ammon. Amnon, son of David. He falls in love with his sister, half-sister, Tamar. He deceives her and tries to seduce her. It doesn't work, and then he rapes her. And then, as soon as it happens, he hates her more than he ever was attracted to her. And he sends her away in shame. And David does nothing. In chapter 14, it's two years later, Absalom... Her other brother sets Amnon up and has him killed because of what he had done to Tamar. And then Absalom flees, and for three years he's gone. And it's through cunning that David's advisor, Joab, gets David to bring Absalom back. But even then, David won't see Absalom face to face, even though he loves him dearly. And resentment and bitterness grow in Absalom's heart, and he rebels against his father who is forced to flee. And then it's intrigue and strife, and ultimately the death of Absalom at the hands of Joab and his men, even though David told him not to do that. It's most of the second half of 2 Samuel. Abuse has consequences. It has consequences for the one abused, for the abuser, and for those connected to both the abuse and the abuser. We see that in that story. The person who has been abused deals with the physical and mental and emotional after effects. McCoy, in the article I quoted earlier, states that after analyzing reported cases of sexual assault over a 10-year period, a 2010 study found that between 2 and 10% of accusations were false. Yet even this fails to represent the rarity of false accusations since it only includes reported cases. This same study also found that many victims of sexual violence did not report the crime because they did not think anything would be done about it. And that's the story of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. Are there false reports? Yes. Because, as we've said earlier, everyone has fallen. But the stats are clear. It's rare. And beyond the actual abuse... There is the trauma of not being believed, of being shamed and rejected when you have done nothing wrong. And it takes unbelievable courage to step up because the reality is likely it's not going to go well for you if you do. And even if it does, there's a feeling of stain, of shame. And it can be a lifetime of physical and emotional scars, ones that may never fully heal and that can come to the forefront at unexpected times years later. And there are consequences for the abuser as well. Amnon's crimes twist him as a person. And they ultimately cause his death. Abusers often enter a spiral, fear and self-loathing, and more abuse and more self-loathing, and they become twisted shells of what God had wanted for them. This is a bit of the horror that Lewis was talking about. They become thoroughly corrupted, and when they get caught and they go to jail... 
potentially for the rest of their lives and potentially crimes in prison against them and on and on it goes. And from the story of Amnon and Tamar, we see that the ripples affect those in the orbit around as well, right? In this case, the consequences literally divided a nation. Civil war, hundreds died. In our lives, the traumas played out in the lives for those caring for the abuse and those picking up the pieces and trying to live after those families of the abuser who didn't know when you find out something horrible like that. The ripples of abuse can be staggering, and it is not a pretty picture. It can feel more than a little bit daunting, but abuse can be redeemed. I didn't say it was good. That God is somehow doing this to us for our good. And this is a lie that is far too often told to those who have been abused. It's demeaning, it's debilitating, and it besmirches the name of God. We do things like rip Romans 8.28 out of context and thinking that we are comforting those in pain, saying that somehow God ordains the bad thing that happens so that you will achieve your purpose. It misuses this verse. This is not what Romans 8.28 says. This is what, Roman, what Paul says in Romans 8, starting in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might, uh, uh, sorry, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And to those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of, the, of God and is also interceding for us. What shall who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we, are fa we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is talking about suffering here. He's not saying God does it. He is saying that God is bigger than your trauma and that he understands. God is bigger than abuse. He can take even the most horrible of things in our broken, fallen world and turn them on their heads and subvert them. This doesn't mean that God caused the, that bad thing or that evil isn't evil. It means that God is bigger than any evil and can even bend evil to his will and turn it into something that shows his glory. The woman traumatized by abuse who becomes an advocate for women or starts a shelter or takes in another. The child who is abused who comes forward and forces a light to be shown in dark corners, literally saving lives. The list is great. God is bigger than your abuse or trauma. He is promised to repay. Rachel Den Hollander is a Christian woman, a lawyer, who stood up to Larry Nasser and caused a revolution in USA Gymnastics. It's because of her that a horrendous crime was exposed. And she is now leading the charge to help others, and her book is coming out later this year. I know it because friends of mine are helping work on it with her. And that's an amazing story. 
Sometimes God seems silent, and it can be hard for us to understand. But if we look again at this Romans passage, we see that the Spirit prays on our behalf when we don't know how to pray or what to pray for in verse 26. The Father, Paul tells us in in verse 27, searches our hearts and knows what the Spirit is saying. And Christ himself pleads on our behalf in verse 35. What did Jesus do on our behalf? He came, he lived a perfect life, he taught us how to live in relationship with God, and he was betrayed and abused, and he was killed for us. God himself, subject to torment for us. Literally the biggest injustice in the cosmos for all time. God understands. And because he does, healing can be found. Make no mistake. There are consequences to abuse, and there can be literally a lifetime of trauma, but healing can be found. In the work of Christ, through the power of Holy Spirit, the Father wraps His arms around you, holding you up, giving life and comfort. And it may take years to come to grips with what has happened, but God will still be there. He says that He will never leave us or forsake us. Psalm 23, we read at funerals, but this is a psalm for the living. God cares and comforts, and he will be there for us. And Paul says nothing can separate us from God's love. And Jesus is the embodiment of God, the creator and redeemer and king. In Matthew 23 and Luke 13, Jesus identifies himself as a hen gathering chicks under her wings for protection. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus healing those who need healing, reaching out to comfort those who need comfort. And the Holy Spirit is called the comforter by Jesus. Again, if you're in harm's way, you get out. You call the police. The other issues can be sorted out later. But healing can be found. And I would add, therapy is going to be needed. We go to the doctor to fix broken limbs and infections. And why on earth do we not seek out a doctor for trauma in the mind and spirit? God has given us the means, and it may be tough, but the way can be made. Seek the help you need. Almost done. I know this is long. It's a hard topic. Even abusers can be forgiven. Honestly, most of us don't particularly want to hear that part. But it is true. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, this is what Paul says. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor practicing homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or slanders, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Perhaps you're not the abused, you're the abuser, the perpetrator. Forgiveness is possible even here. There will be consequences to face, and you will need to face them. Let's be clear. Forgiveness doesn't mean no consequences. And the child abuser can be forgiven, but shouldn't be with children alone ever again. The rapist needs to be in jail. But there's a difference between consequences here and now and the forgiveness offered by Christ. Here's the thing about forgiveness. To the one abused, it's not, you're not forgiving for that other person. It's for you. It frees you. For the abuser, God offers forgiveness. That doesn't mean there's no consequences. It doesn't mean that reconciliation or restoration are automatic. And those are two different things. Maybe, but maybe not. God can and has even used abusers for his glory, as hard as that is for us to see. Gangbangers who become evangelists, kings who had murders committed, David, apostles who jailed and stood by when believers were killed. Do we believe that God is a God who forgives? 
If you're an abuser, it's time to come clean. Step up and face the consequences in your God. And finally, the abused must be cared for. To the abused, you may just now be admitting that something has happened to you or is happening to you. That's a huge step. And we stand ready to walk with you. The church is the body of Christ. We stand with you. And we may not have all the answers, but we will help find them to walk with you toward healing. For those of us who are walking beside someone who has been uh, abused, don't try to control the situation or force forgiveness. That's not your job. That comes in time. If someone opens up to you, the very first thing, perhaps the only immediate thing that they need is for you to be there. To listen. It's not the time for recriminations, for questioning, or fixing things. It may be time to call the police. Look, there are resources available. I can't, I, I'm, I'm over time, and I can't get to anything. But you can find lots of resources on the web. Justin Holcomb is a uh, theology professor who's come to mind. Galatians 2, 6, 2 tells us to bear one another's burdens. And James 2, 15 to 17 says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does, not, does nothing about their needs, their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, by faith itself, if, if it is not accomplished by action, it's dead. As believers, it is our responsibility to, te to reach out to others in need. And we always ought to do what we can. Look, this is a very difficult topic. It's a difficult sermon, and it goes long. And I hope on some level, it's a bit of a wake-up call and an encouragement. And so I want to leave with a little bit of an encouragement and I'm going to read Psalm 91, because I think this is the promise. Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the, in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. They say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because they love me, says the Lord, I will rescue them. I will protect them, for they acknowledge my name. They will call on me and I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will deliver them and honor them. With long life I will satisfy them and show them my salvation.